Welcome to Dharma If You Dare. Today's recording comes from Doug Duncan and Catherine Poissarat's livestream series, Enlighten Up. In this talk, Doug and Catherine explore the difference between mindfulness and meditation, the power of retreat work, and why people tend not to practice. They look at how meditation gives us the space to see how much of our experience is ruled by the habit patterns of our operating system, aka the ego. The insights this produces allows us to see through our isolation to the very ground of being and to compassionately share the benefits of this clear and loving space with others. Helping people experience spiritual awakening is the reason Planet Dharma exists. If you are also passionate about unfolding and awakening deeper and more quickly, we encourage you to enroll in one of our online courses. Each year, Doug and Catherine host multiple online courses live on various topics with the goal of empowering participants to dive deep into their awakening spiritual practice. Learn more about upcoming opportunities to join these online offerings at planetdharma.com online. And now here's today's recording. There are so many aspects to the spiritual life and depending on what's happening with us and in our, at our center and in our communities, we focus on different ones. Conscious community, Sangha, the community of spiritual practitioners is one we like to focus on. And today we're going to talk, as Sensei said, about the value of meditation. And by that we mean formal sitting meditation as compared to, say, mindfulness, which is also, of course, wonderful and very valuable and it's exciting that it's becoming more and more mainstream and it's just not the same thing as meditation. So we want to talk a little bit about why and the difference between them. Well, mindfulness is really necessary because our daily lives are generally quite full and by bringing mindfulness to them, we introduce spaciousness into our daily lives and then we don't start hyperventilating because they're so full, right? We can bring our practice, our spiritual practice, into everything that we do. And that's awesome. That's the upside of mindfulness. And it can be easy because our lives are so full to then end up not really meditating so much. And I'm as challenged by this as anybody. You know, our, if we have a formal practice, a daily practice, they can get shorter and shorter and or further and further between. And our retreats can get shorter and shorter and longer spaces between them. And after meditating for 20 years, I can really honestly say that when I do a retreat, I just finished a month-long retreat, I'm just eternally amazed and astonished at the states that are only accessible to me at this after 20 years of meditation in a long retreat and how much that practice, how much that access to those states nourishes and enriches the rest of my life. Every retreat I think, oh my gosh, I don't want to do without this because it's so valuable and so rare. If I don't take the time, then I don't have those experiences. I'm talking about retreat time, which is basically why we founded this retreat center, is to be able to do longer retreats. Fundamentally, the difference between mindfulness and meditation is mindfulness is largely awareness about what's happening to you in your environment when you're in it. And meditation is more about what you're aware of inside yourself when the environment is not so central. So in mindfulness practice, I'm aware that Richard is writing with his 
pen and he's right-handed and he's wearing black. That's a mindfulness practice. But meditation is when I stand back from the sensory data and I go inside myself and watch how I experience what I'm aware of. And the reason that this is so important is because we're alone. As an individual around two years of age, we become an ego and we become separate people. And once we become separate people, we're on our own. We fundamentally live alone and die alone inside our own heads and nobody has access to that except us other than through our mirror neurons which allows us to empathize and, and kind of read what's going on in someone else and that's fine. But inside our own experience we have our own feelings, we have our own sensations, we have our own thoughts and that separates us. And for the ego the ultimate terror is separation. So when you're practicing mindfulness, you're still an ego. You're still kind of me aware of Sarah with her hat or me aware of Kara on the computer. But when you go to meditation, you remove yourself. You pull yourself back from just witnessing the phenomena to witnessing the mind that witnesses the phenomena. And when you start looking at the nature of the phenomena that you're experiencing internally, as well as externally, you move from mindfulness to meditation. And this is the only cure for loneliness. This is the only way to transcend the separation of the ego is to move beyond it. And to do that, you have to meditate. I just wanted to highlight that link that you made between the ego fears separation because it's so vulnerable, right? If, if we're by ourselves, we, we can't survive as an organism if, if we're by ourselves. And we rely on the people who install the ATM machines. Right? We rely on the people who stock the grocery store. And uh, I wanted to make that link between that fear of separation and the epidemics of loneliness that have become so common. And Sartre said other people are hell. And maybe people can relate to that a little bit. Maybe it can be challenging to be with other people. So we get our own apartment, we get our own car, we get our own, you know, so we, we can control the space, basically. So the ego is simultaneously trying to be in as much control as possible, which means separating, then fearing this separation and then suffering terribly from the results of that, from loneliness. And so meditation is a way of intentionally being separate. My father likes to say when I go into solitary retreat for a month, he said, Catherine, I hate to tell you this, but for centuries that's been punishment to people. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's true, right? So we do this voluntarily so that we can watch all of these things that come up, in, including fear and anxiety around separation and loneliness, and see how much of it is generated by our own minds. So on that basis, one of the big fears of the ego is abandonment. So that has to do with the external environment. If I'm abandoned by my friends or abandoned by my parents, if I'm abandoned by my parents when I'm young, I'm dead. If I'm abandoned by, by my friends or my environment, I'm lonely, but I can survive, right? But you don't really meet the fear of annihilation, I mean, other than being killed by somebody, until you go inside. And when you go inside and you see that the ego's root fear is annihilation, the fear of being wiped out, the fear of disappearing. You see how the ego then goes work so hard to keep involved and engaged, so hard to keep involved and engaged. Keep it busy, get through the day, keep and, it busy, get and through control. the day, and control. And manipulating to always keep itself in the game. So from the minute we get up in the morning till the minute we go to bed at night, it's me, 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 me. It's how I think, it's how I feel, it's what I sense. Now there's no peace there, there's no peace to be found, there's no contentment to be found, and fundamentally, 
while there's temporary bliss to be found in terms of the, you know, the drugs that are in our system, like dopamine and so on, we can get the hit, but it doesn't last. It's temporary. It moves through. So there's no real security mm. for the sense of self in the ego constructs because they're impermanent, they're transient, they're subject to loss, and they're out of our control, really. So the only place you can find peace, real peace and real bliss and real clarity and real contentment is when you go past the ego. And it's very, very hard to do that in the world because everything about the world is about interacting egos. So when you meditate, you start to experience your processing internally, which is one step closer to home. So that's mindfulness. When you can be aware of what you're aware of when you're aware of it. But to be aware of the thing that's aware is meditation. And that then takes you past, starts to take you past the ego, takes you into a place where the ego can rest or relax because it's not needed. And you can enter in this altered space, kind of altered states of consciousness, which we call jhana in meditation or absorptions. Or you can understand that process. You can start to see how the interaction works between me and other in the environment. And that's called insight when I start to understand how these things connect. So between the insight, right, which is an understanding, and the bliss emptiness, which is a feeling, you then have this meditative space, which is why people meditate, I think. So if we look closely, we can see that despite all our efforts to the contrary, the only person that we can change is ourselves, or to be meditationally technical, our non-self. <laughs> so we've tried, right? We've tried to change other people. We've believed that we can do it. We've committed. And it, as far as I can tell, it just does not seem to be possible. Does, does anybody, has anybody found differently? Right? Anybody have any success changing somebody else? Not, not <laughs> yet, but we're not, working. Not yet, we're not still yet, trying maybe. we're working on it. And this is why it's so important. We have to know what we are bringing to every situation, right? Because we're the only ones that we can change. And if we change what we're bringing to any situation, then the entire mandala changes. So if we want to change a situation, if we want to help other people to change, then we just change ourselves and it will all shift. We don't necessarily know how it will shift, but we can be sure that it will shift. And so we need to understand, as Sensei is describing, what are our thought patterns? What are our emotional patterns? What are our physical patterns that we're bringing to any situation? And really the only way to, well, it's like layers of an onion. Every time we go into a retreat, we have realizations about, I, I didn't really see how I was doing that, how I'm carrying this around with me all of the time. And then believing that it's other people. You know, how come everyone I know does X? <laughs> well, obviously I'm carrying X around with me, and so that's what everyone encounters, and that's what everyone is responding to. So in meditation we see this, we see this more clearly, and then we can invite space around whatever this pattern is. If we don't see it, it there's no spaciousness there. And we realize that we have choices that we can choose to not manifest these patterns, choose to manifest other patterns, and that choices brings freedom, and that's why we call it spiritual liberation. Yeah, we can flip on this one. I just come at it from the other end now. And why don't people meditate? 
why don't we meditate? Well, fundamentally, the reason we don't meditate is because we live on habit. We live on our routines, and as soon as our routines are interrupted, we get nervous. Mm. So meditation, if you're not already established in a meditation practice, is an interruption to your habit pattern, your habit pattern of whatever it is. So it's not that meditation is uncomfortable or unpleasant, we just don't like doing it because it's interfering with our habit patterns. And our self, our sense of self, is deeply, deeply rooted into our habit patterns. So mindfulness is a really easy approach to it. I can, I'm mindful of my habit pattern. Hey, that's fantastic. I'm mindful of my habit that I'm drinking coffee. I'm just gonna keep drinking coffee. I'm mindful about that, right? But I'm not interfering with the habit. The habit's running, and habits are very low levels of mindfulness. I mean, in half the time, we're not even mindful at all. We're absent-minded. We're in the habit. It's running itself. So the reason we have a hard time getting to the meditation cushion, or the reason it's a hard time to meditate, is because it's interfering with habits, interferes with myself. If it interferes with myself, it makes me anxious and makes me feel more aware of my loneliness and my separation, therefore I won't do it. I'll go shovel the sidewalk, even if it doesn't need it, to keep that habit in place. Or social media or, or fill yeah, in or the Or social blank. media or fill in the blank. So the, the problem with habits, of course, is a very low level of mindfulness, and it hides the underlying structure of the ego, which is its separation and its isolation. So you don't notice it. So the minute your habit is interrupted, the loneliness of the ego in its environment is brought right to the front. So most people run back to their habit to bury that. But there's no freedom by hiding. You can run, but you cannot hide, right? So there's no freedom from that. So we meditate in order to find true freedom, which is break the habit pattern or, or give the habit a break and practice awareness about the habit. That makes us distinctly uncomfortable because it brings forth our loneliness. It brings forth our separation. It brings forth our isolation as an ego. This is why it's hard to meditate. You get in touch with that, you actually get a certain amount of release. At least you know the problem, right? You get release, but it still interferes with the self. So you go back to the habit. So this dialogue goes on for years. Habit, a little bit of meditation, back to habit, back to habit, back to habit. Now, with mindfulness, you go, okay, well, if I want, if I want to really establish a place where I am at peace, I need to go past the habit, past the mindfulness and pass the sense of the self. So the big part of meditation is understanding that this self, which we labor and toil endlessly in order to support and promote and defend and erect and build and hold and run our lives with, doesn't actually exist in the way we think it does. It's a program. It's a running program. So what happens in meditation is you start to see... An operating system? Operating system. You start to see that the self is an operating system, not the ground of being. And this is where you start to access altered states of consciousness and altered ways of experiencing life that are much more peaceful and much more blissful and much more spacious and much more calm and much more bright than the ego can ever find on its own. That's what's behind the operating system. Behind the OS. OS Doug. And behind OS Doug is, yeah, we call it no thing. So this is, of course, not news. The world's wisdom traditions have been describing these exalted states for as long as written human history has existed and before. And so these states are available to anyone who is willing to commit the time and the energy to 
I was going to say go looking for them, but it's really more about learning to open up to them, which is why Islam means surrender. And it takes meditation to be able to learn how to let go of the operating system or, or see the operating system, right? Learn to relax it so that we can perceive what's beyond that. And we believe it's every human's birthright. And why settle for kind of running around with a little ego? Uh, that, that can also be fun. You know, nothing against regular life. It's also good and so much more meaningful when we have access to this cosmic consciousness. Let's assume for the moment that you've experienced this transcendental-ing, it's a gerund, I-N-G, this transcendental experience. Because the, it's not a fixed state, it's always right, in flux. It's in flux. So now you're dwelling in this peaceful, blissful, spacious clarity, and it feels good. <laughs> it feels better than good. It's the best feeling you're ever going to have in life. And there's an automatic response, because you're a human being, is to share it. Human beings are what they are because they share. This is how we have become who we are, through sharing, through interacting. So the natural tendency of the human being, now that it's free from personal suffering, or at least temporarily, is to share it. So then you go back out, right? You come back out of this altered state of consciousness, sort of, kind of. Or meditation retreat. Right, or meditation retreat. And you take it back to the world. Now, eventually, you can carry them both simultaneously, but maybe not initially. It takes so some practice. It takes some practice. So you come back in the world, your job now is to share it. So that's an act of compassion. Because you're in a good state, because you're in a state of bliss, clarity, non-clean, your automatic human response is to share it. So that's the compassion part of it. The compassion part of it is by sharing this good state with somebody who's not in a good state, hopefully that person gets in a good state and everybody's problems get less. That's in a nutshell. So the process it, now, Is that the bodhisattva vow in a nutshell? That's the bodhisattva vow in a nutshell. To dedicate all one's energy for the benefit of all beings. Exactly. So now the big problem becomes how do I share it? And this is now then where the interface between meditation and karma yoga comes into place or meditation and service, or meditation and the bodhisattva vow. It's how do I share this? And how can I talk to people in a way that they can hear it and be uh, attracted and pulled into the space to meet their life more fully, in a sense, right? So people are doers, so we approach them where they are, which is in the doing, the karma yoga and the service. Then from there, into the meditation, and then back out to the service. And, and then this forms your community, the community of meditation, the community of karma yoga, service, compassionate action in the world. Where it gets tricky... Where does it get tricky? Well, I'll tell you where. <laughs> where, it get, where it gets tricky is in the dialogue between the experience of the meditation space and the world at large with people and their egos. And so this then is a constant dialogue back and forth between your meditation and your interaction in the, with the world to learn how to be more compassionate. But you need to contact with that space in order to share. If and that if, takes so much skill, right? Does. Which is why the community is so important, because where are we going to learn those skills? Exactly. And if and you're just sharing, thank you. And if you're just sharing from the point of view of the ego, then you're not sharing that space. You're sharing habit. If I'm just sharing from my ego mind, I'm just sharing from my separated, isolated being. My separated, isolated being to her separated, isolated back. If we're just sharing from ego level. But if we're sharing from emptiness, spacious, bliss, clarity, non-clinging, etc., altered state level, 
then we're sharing at core. So then whatever problems happen between the two egos are much more resolvable. But without that underlying foundation. Of emptiness. Of emptiness, spaciousness, love. Spaciousness. Compassion. You're using all those terms as synonyms? Yeah. And where we cultivate our ability to keep one foot in emptiness at all times, spaciousness at all times, is in retreat. Because that takes practice. Because it is possible to lose that contact at any given time. So that's why we call it meditation practice. Can I stay in emptiness? Can I stay in emptiness? Can I stay in emptiness? We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please rate and review Dharma If You Dare on Apple Podcasts to help more people find and benefit from these teachings. And don't forget to subscribe to get episodes and bonus content sent directly to your device. This year, Planet Dharma's online courses include a variety of topics, such as classical Buddha Dharma and how to establish and strengthen your daily practice, all geared towards life in our modern world. Take a look at what online offerings are up next at planetdharma.com online. See you next time, and may all our efforts benefit all beings.